In a world where a man loves movies and loves lists and keeps a list of his 100 favorite movies for over 30 years, what if he made his wife watch those movies in order? And what if he made her talk about it on a podcast? Would she like them? Would she hate them? Can this marriage possibly survive this podcast? Find out what will happen in a world called Craig's List. Yeah, all right, uh, Carla, let's uh, let's get ready to take this podcast. Why do you sound so gross? <laughs> what do you mean? Why do I sound so gross? This is how I. This is how I sound every week, Carla. Uh, this is Craig's List, and this is Craig, and welcome, Craig's listeners. And we're just gonna, uh, we're just gonna do this thing. Yuck! We're in, <laughs> we're in Portland. We're in Portland, Oregon, uh, and I've, I've been eating, I've been eating and drinking a lot since Non-stop. we've been here. Um. And there's, the beer is really good here, basically, is what I'm saying. And, um, there's, uh, <laughs> sandwiches of all kind and baked goods. So, um, uh, I've had a lot of cookies and uh, a lot of chocolate candy bars. And, uh, maybe I've put on a few pounds. I don't know. That's up for you. How many pounds do you think? I think I've put on about 200 pounds. So. <laughs> I'm a little more jowly than usual, and uh, I'm having a hard time getting around. I'm using a cane. Well, I still love you. I still love you. I mean, don't touch me, but I still love you. <laughs> I still love you, Carla. Ah, 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 ah. Oh, let me just pull out this padding here. Taking ah. off a fat suit in front of me? <laughs> See, Carla, I'm not really that fat. Oh, thank God. It was all padding and prosthetics. I actually have put on a little weight in Portland, but not 200 pounds. Prosthetics. Not prosthetics. Prosthetics. I think I've been saying it wrong all this time. Uh, well, do you say aesthetic or aesthetic? I think I probably say aesthetic. <laughs> you don't need to pronounce the H. All right. Prosthetics. Good to know. Good to know, Craig Kakowski. Well, that's just me with an opinion on a pronunciation, whether I'm right or not. I don't know, but I'm sure someone will tell us from the internet. I, <laughs> there's no way we could put something out on the internet and not get feedback from somebody on the correct answer. That's what I depend on Craig's listeners for. No need to yawn this early <laughs> into the episode. I look over at Carla and she's said <laughs> the most gigantic yawn you've ever seen. We haven't even started so talking about the movie today. Carla. What was the movie again? <laughs> a twist of fate. Carla, today's movie is a twist of fate. Uh, what is a twist of fate? I don't know. Okay. Isn't it a Steve Martin movie? Uh, you're, uh, are you thinking of the one where he's a, a fake, uh, a phony preacher? Yeah. What's that called? Uh, it's not called Twist of Fate. No, he was in a different one called Twist of Fate. But okay. go ahead. Tell them what the movie is today, Craig. <laughs> uh, Craig's listeners, today's movie is number 42 on Craig's list. This is episode 59 and it is an Orson Welles joint from 1958, uh, entitled Touch of Evil. Oh, that's what it is. 
<laughs> just a touch. Just a smidge. Just a little bit of evil. Just, just a, a touch, little bit. A touch of evil. A small amount of evil. Um, I actually think there's probably more than a touch of evil in this movie. Uh, but this is kind of the... We're about to embark on a five-movie run uh, of kind of film noir uh, movies, Carla. So you a are- simple twist of fate, starring Steve Martin, Gabriel Byrne, and Laura Linney, and Catherine O'Hara. What the fuck? I have never heard of that. <laughs> There's a movie called A Simple Twist of Fate with Steve Martin. Uh, thank you. Uh, good night. Everybody. What's the movie I was thinking of? I don't know. Yes, you do. Philip, Philip Seymour Hoffman is in it. Oh, right. The yeah. Yeah. That one's called something else. And he's like an evangelistic uh LA story. Preacher. Just kidding. It's called LA story. Um God, sorry we got so sidetracked, you guys. I just really love it when I'm right. Well, you weren't right because <laughs> you missed <laughs> you missed the word simple. Nope, I was right. Um, the one that you're talking about. Hey, what's your favorite Steve Martin movie, Craig? My favorite Steve Martin movie? Yeah, I'm killing time while I'm looking it up. Leap of Faith. Leap of Faith. Okay. Yeah, that does kind of sound like Twist of Fate, which t- I, I think you were conflating a simple twist of fate with Leap of Faith. And we saw a musical that was an adaptation of Leap of Faith. Was it also called with Leap Brooke of Shields? With Brooke Shields as Steve Martin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> severely miscast. It was Lynn Manuel Miranda. It was not Lynn Mel- Men- 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 Miranda. <laughs> I'm sorry, you guys. It's been a really long week of doing podcasts. (laughs) This is our third in two days. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of recording out of order as we usually do when we have guests involved. So we've also watched maybe six movies. (laughs) That's correct. Because I'm about to leave Portland Mm -hmm. and we need to get in as many of these as possible uh, to feed the beast. Uh, which is you guys, Craigslist, or you are the beast that we are feeding, uh, with this podcast. Such a nice beast. A nice beast. You are a nice beast. Um, but yeah, you made me watch several film noirs in a row. Let you watch. I let you watch. Uh, so yeah, I, when I put together the list, there is no attempt to make it, uh, to have variety necessarily. It really right. is just me saying that I like this movie slightly more than I like this movie. And so it just so happens I have five movies in a row, uh, that could all be classified as film noir. I think two of them are kind of from the actual classic, uh, era of noir, like the 40s and 50s in Hollywood. So I've got one movie from the 40s, one movie from the 50s, which is this movie. I've got a movie from the 70s and a movie from the 80s that are kind of homages to film noir. And I've got a movie from the 90s that isn't really a film noir movie, but is set in Hollywood during that era and contains noirish elements. Mm-hmm. So of the next five movies, they're all kind of, uh, four of them are set in LA, I think. Three of them were shot. No. Four of them were shot in L.A. Three of them are set in L.A. Uh, this movie. Not this one. This movie is set in a border town. But it was shot in Venice. Shot in Venice, California, right by the ocean and shot on the Universal lot as well. But um, but mostly uh, real exterior locations in Venice. Uh, but it's standing in for a Mexican uh, and U.S. border town. doesn't say really whether whether that's in California Arizona. Uh, oh, I guess I just assumed California, but could be Arizona or yeah, Texas, right? You're right. No, you're totally yeah. right. You're right. Are there border towns in New Mexico as well? I don't know. There must be. There must be. Yeah, there's a border there. 
Uh, yeah, so it doesn't really say where the border is exactly, but it's it's kind of a, a Tijuana like town, mm-hmm. though, right? Because That's what it seems like, yeah, it's it's sleazy. There's bars, there's whorehouses, there's drugs, and people are kind of going freely across uh, the the border, uh, back and forth. Uh, but this is a movie that Orson Welles directed and stars in, and it was the last movie he made for a Hollywood studio in his career. Uh, Wells, let's see, he was 26 when he made Citizen Kane, so he would have been 42 or 43 when he made this movie. And he plays, uh, Detective Hank Quinlan, who is a, uh, an American cop, uh, who gets involved with a, uh, a murder. Uh, a bomb is placed in a car and is blown up right on the border, so it's kind of in his jurisdiction. Uh, but there's a Mexican cop also involved, played by, for some reason, Charlton Heston. Right. <laughs> um, uh, Vargas. And he has recently married a, uh, American woman played by Janet Lee. Mm-hmm. So, uh, a lot of great 50s movie stars in this. And there's cameo appearances from Joseph Cotton, uh, Marlena Dietrich, um, Mercedes McCambridge, Dennis Weaver. Uh, there's a, there's a collection of, uh, great character actors, uh, all throughout. So it's, uh, it's kind of a classic film noir. Uh, and it really, it feels very modern, uh, to me hmm. in that, in that it doesn't feel of its time. Uh, now this is definitely as the studio system is starting just to, uh, to fade away a little bit. But if you look at most Hollywood movies from the fifties, they're not going to look or feel at all like touch of evil does. Um, and I think it's very influential, uh, both cinematically, uh, on a lot of, uh, movies since, and then just tonally, it feels almost like a David Lynch movie in that there are things that are kind of weird and dreamlike in it. it it's not, uh, it's not surreal in any way, but there's a lot of just weird <laughs> elements to it. Yeah. And, and that's part of why I like it. Cool. <laughs> so join me, if you will, as we go on a ride <laughs> through Touch of Evil. Um, I first saw this movie with my friend Andrew uh, in my teens, and I think we were on an Orson Welles kick. So we definitely watched Citizen Kane. We definitely watched The Magnificent Ambersons, which is the film he made immediately after that. And then I think Touch of Evil was my third Orson Welles movie. And there was a version uh, that was out on home video in the 80s that I believe had restored some of uh, some of the footage that Wells had shot in the 50s. So it wasn't uh, exactly what had played on the big screen in the 50s, uh, but it wasn't the fully restored director's cut that we watched. Uh, and actually, director's cut is kind of a misnomer because this happened after Wells's death, and it's based on a... I forget the exact amount of pages, but it's like a 50 page memo that he wrote to the studio after viewing their re-edit of his cut. And these are all the changes he thought should have been made to the film, but they were not made. And so it went out in a different version for a number of years. And then, uh, some film scholars and, uh, editors got together in the late nineties and recut the movie. And so the version that we watch and the version that's on my list uh, is that uh, remastered version. Cool. <laughs> I don't know what to say. 
Um, and it's actually, I think, a textbook example of what a factor editing can be mm-hmm. uh, in making you see a movie in a whole new way. Because I always liked this movie, but it was not on my list until uh, I lived in Chicago at the time. And they showed this new remastered version at the Music Box, which is a beautiful theater uh, on Southport and Waveland, I believe, in uh, the north side of Chicago. And uh, a movie that I already liked uh, immediately became an all-time favorite for me. And it's not – the footage is not that different. I mean, certainly all the great cinematography was in the original version. This was definitely remastered, so everything looks sharper or actually darker. You can see the contrast of all the, the great uh, shots. I think Russell Meddy is the cinematographer hmm. uh, for this one. Um That's another yawn. From <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm not doing it on purpose. I promise. Uh, but they kind of followed Wells's memo uh, to the letter and exacted all these changes on this movie, which makes it feel like a completely new movie. And uh, I've seen it probably three or four times since then and like it a little more every time I see it. So you had never seen this before? I had never seen it before. What did you know about it? I worked in a video store in college and it was in the new releases section, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though it was an old movie. So I think I, that's probably when they just put out this remastered version. Then. Yeah. So probably like 99. Does that yeah, sound right? That seems accurate. Cause that was 98 when it came out. Um, and so that's all I knew about it. Okay. <laughs> there weren't tons of nerdy guys coming and be like, uh, do you have the remastered touch of evil? I mean, I, I remember it was, out for a while so it must have been popular yeah i feel like uh knowing that we were doing this episode would mention it to a couple of nerdy film fan friends of ours who are uh, who are like "Ooh, touch of evil mm-hmm. <laughs> we're all guys of course right um yeah i don't know it's not my thing <laughs> i i why is it not i feel thing? ill-equipped to talk about it because i appreciate it like I thought that the photography was really, really great and surprising, much like the last Orson Welles movie that we watched. The Third Man. The Third Man. But much like the last Orson Welles movie that we watched, didn't really care about anything that was happening in it. And I maybe cared about this one a little bit more than The Third Man. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, it's just, I think, you know, when you're 37, you have to be able to say what what you like and what you don't like and just be okay with that. And it's just not my thing, but it doesn't mean that it's bad. Sure. Just means it's not your thing. Just means it's not my thing. This is totally my thing. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I just don't want to pretend like it. I don't want to like play into the like, haha, this is a bad movie. Craig thing. Cause it's not, it's a good movie. <laughs> it's well-made. Okay. It's impressive. The, the, uh, you know, being able to appreciate the technical advances that it was making and the choices, like their choices constantly being made, you know, cinematically in this film. Yeah. Couldn't have cared less about what was going on with the story though. Not that I couldn't have cared less. I just couldn't have cared much. Would you say that you're as a movie watcher, are you kind of story first? Do you need to 
Does there need to be a character whose journey you connect with and on some level? Probably or care about. Yeah. Because I, I think I, that's a frequent complaint for you of like, I just didn't care about anyone. Maybe that's, yeah, maybe that's nothing I've really thought about before. So we started to do this podcast and am thinking about a lot now. <laughs> um, and it doesn't even have to be that I share an experience with that, with that character to get me into the story, but it certainly has to interest me in some way. I think because, you know, I've seen probably the bad version or the, um, the typical version of a lot of the things that you're showing me, like all the copycats. Yes. Maybe it's harder for me to be impressed by the innovations that were being made in these original movies. Yeah. Um, and so, but I'm aware of that and I'm trying to be fair about it. <laughs> like yeah. oftentimes I'll just make fun of it cause it's funny. And this is a comedy podcast, I think. Um, and I do feel that way to a certain extent, just kind of exhausted by the same type of story being told again and again, <laughs> but I can also, you know, step back and say, Hey, like these, of course, these are on a lot of people's top 100 films because they're well-made films. Um, I just don't care about them. I think you're not alone in this story not resonating with you because I think to me this movie is way more about mood than it is plot. Mm -hmm. However, because it's a mystery and there's cops involved and there's like lots of players and lots of intrigue and it seems like there's going to be a plot unraveling with satisfactory Right. Uh, resolution to it. And there really isn't. The plot is really confusing. Mm -hmm. And you're, and believe me, it was even more confusing before it was re-edited. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the re-edit actually helped to at least, if not make the story clearer, it at least makes it easier to, to watch and, and follow how all the characters relate to one another and, and fit into it. Mm -hmm. Um, but to me, it's just not about that. Um, Peter Bogdanovich, who was, you know, one of Wells's proteges and was friends with him. He's on the, uh, the DVD extras. And he was like, I, you know, the first five or six times I saw this movie, I had no idea what was going on. And I said that to Orson. And he's like, well, that's a, that's a problem if you don't understand the story, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess in Wells's mind, it was all clear, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that to me is, uh, is, part of the fun, but I, I see how that can be unsatisfactory for a lot of people. And having seen it probably six or seven times, it's a lot clearer to me now, though I think there are still things that are obscure uh, about it. But to me, the joys of watching this movie are not about that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in terms of like innovation, there's things like handheld cameras. Like right. that, that was a new thing for Hollywood and I pictures. mean, certainly that opening shot is really impressive, even by today's standards. It's one of the most famous tracking shots of all time. Yeah. And I'm not an idiot. Like, I didn't know that it was a famous tracking shot, and I was swept up in it, for sure. Impressed by it. Cool. Um, But, yeah. You're not, you're not an idiot. But, well, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like sometimes I come off on this podcast like, you know, oh, it's not fast enough or funny enough or you know, mainstream enough. So I don't like it. And that's not true. It's just, 
that you have a lot of the same type of movie on your list. And I'm feeling exhaustion from all the dude movies I've been watching. Are you concerned about how the Carla character is? Yeah, is, sometimes. Is reading to well, the Well, I was audience. thinking today, I was like, I don't have anything to say about this movie. Like, I really don't. Clearly, I do because I just talked straight for three minutes. But I just, I don't have anything new to say, I guess. That um, you haven't said, said about other movies. Right. Like sometimes I'll play up the was boring thing or it's all about this guy. <laughs> but I've already done that with some of your movies and it feels like a cheap trick at this okay. point. So you're trying to find a new angle to hate I'm this trying movie Trying to find on. a new angle to hate this movie on and I just can't. <laughs> Maybe I'm not creative enough. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, I bet you'll, you'll find one. We'll start talking. We'll- I just, I feel a little exhausted. Carla, I trust you. Don't, don't worry. Once we get into the specifics <laughs> of the movie, I know you'll find a brand new way to hate this movie <sighs> that you haven't hated a movie with yet. Yeah. The, uh, the very famous opening tracking shot scene to the point where the player, the Robert Altman movie about Hollywood mm-hmm. opens with a long tracking oh, shot right. as well. I just watched the player recently. Oh, you did? On a plane. On a plane. Isn't that strange? That is strange. What'd you think of that? I liked it a lot. Really? Yeah. Yeah. But as somebody says, uh, I think I'm, I, I, thought, I feel like we talked about this on this podcast. Did we? Yeah. I mean, it's, it doesn't hold up in terms of, it feels very of its time. It feels very like late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, I think it was 90, 92 when it came yeah, out. So it's it, where Hollywood was 25, mov- 25 movies ago, 25 uh, years ago. I mean, but it's a really crazy story. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of fun actors in yeah. it. Uh, and some good like inside jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget whether it's Buck Henry as himself or somebody else, but somebody, uh, or it might have been Fred. I think it was Fred Ward's character who talks about uh, how long the tracking shot in uh, Oh, you're right. In Touch of Evil yeah. is at the beginning of the movie. That's right. While Altman is doing this long tracking shot throughout the studio himself, so it's like it's a fun little in joke. Um, if only I'd seen that before. <laughs> Uh, then you could have been in the know and be like, yeah, I know that opening track and shot right. in touch of you. The two major things that they did in the re-edit. I will say, I have to interrupt you. I yes. did watch that movie because we had just watched the other Altman movie. Nashville. Nashville. Yeah. So there you go. Look at you affecting my choices outside of this All podcast. Right. Uh, what about shortcuts next? I've seen shortcuts. Okay. That's naked Julianne Moore, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that one. <laughs> yep, sure is. Yeah. Um, Sorry, ladies. <laughs> and Gosford Park, you saw too, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those are among the best, uh, or my favorite Altman. Um, so the, the two major changes that they did Naked what... Helen Mirren, right? <laughs> <laughs> is Helen Mirren in that? <laughs> is Helen Mirren in Gosford Park? Yeah. Is she naked? Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> From the waist down. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, but yeah, I believe she's in that. Uh, if she wasn't, I mean, she should have been, right? It was either her or Charlotte Rampling. <laughs> <laughs> or Judy Dench. Or Judy Dench. Yeah. Um, every English movie must contain at least one of those three actresses. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you watch Game of Thrones, you know that there's only 20 English actors <laughs> and they're in everything. <laughs> they just, just keep getting recycled through stuff. Um, 
so the, the tracking shot at the beginning of Touch of Evil, the two right. major changes that they made were Henry Mancini uh, wrote a wrote theme music uh, to for Breakfast it, at Tiffany's. To, he wrote <laughs> so Moon River was playing over the opening <laughs> titles. Uh, well, they had the titles on the screen uh, over the shot superimposed on the shot and they also had the mancini theme music playing over it Mm -hmm. uh wells did not want any titles so you could see the full image that he had shot and wells wanted atmospheric music that spilled out of the different bars in the town so as you track throughout the town you hear different music coming out of every bar and it's uh it's not on the soundtrack it's played uh atmospherically Mm -hmm. um so that they enacted those two changes and i think it puts a little more focus on the uh on the camera work cool 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 Cool. (laughs) (laughs) and then there's other things like there's a shot of uh charlton heston as vargas and the actor who plays schwartz there i mean it's not really a big deal you know unless you put it in the right context which is it's a shot of them driving and they're actually driving (laughs) in a car and they're talking and they actually recorded the audio live like the audio is not dubbed in and uh they're not being pulled on a trailer uh and they're not there's not a fake background i mean you see it even in uh, especially in hitchcock movies that mm-hmm. they would do process shots with uh you know the the fake uh screen behind anybody who's driving and there's a certain charm to it if you like old movies but then it uh it feels artificial so there's something about seeing two guys having a conversation driving uh, down an alley in this car that's really kind of exciting. And what do you think about the artificiality of Charlton Heston playing a Mexican man? <laughs> it's the first time I saw it, even as a teenager, the first time I saw it, I'm like, oh, it's going to be revealed at some point that he's not really Mexican. Yeah. Like they're going to take off the makeup. <laughs> but no, no, he really is supposed to uh, to be that guy. So watching the interview with him behind the scenes with Charlton Heston talking about it is kind of fascinating where it doesn't really come up as an issue that he's playing a Mexican guy. Yeah. it His thing was, well, I thought of doing an accent, but... Orson Welles said that I didn't need to. <laughs> he says that that that's a regret of his that he didn't actually do a light accent. It would be way more offensive if he was doing an accent. I, think I so. mean, it's awkward enough that he's like, "I'm Charlton Heston and I'm a cop from Mexico, and uh, what is the what's going on here?" You know. And then yeah, so he's like, "So we decided not to go with a light accent. So all they did was they darkened my hair and my mustache and put a light." coat of makeup on me or something like that. Yeah, but he's in brown face, basically. He is, yeah. Like, the way he described the makeup was like, they were putting blush on him or something. But it's very noticeable. It's very noticeable. It's very strange. Yeah. Uh, Charlton Heston, by the way, I was uh, surprised to learn that that is is a screen name. Really? Um, Yeah, his real name is uh, it's Charles something. So Hmm. it's such, such a bizarre name that i always assumed that uh that it had to be his real name but it was not um we, we just heard a good story about charlton heston on wtf with bo bridges right yes it was really uh, really surprising john C- charles carter burp i just burped i'm so sorry he was born john charles carter weird and became charlton heston weird um yeah, uh, we listened to back-to-back Mark Marin episodes with Bo Bridges and Jeff Bridges, or maybe it's the same episode. Did he edit yeah. into to one mm-hmm. episode? It was great. Uh, I mean, Jeff Bridges was everything 
you'd hope he mm-hmm. would be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? He was the most Jeff Bridgesy he could possibly be. Uh, and he, he just, he's just so upbeat about everything. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, man. It was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but Bo Bridges. Bo Bridges also had so many great stories too. And, uh, and he talked about how Charlton Heston, though always right wing and always like a gun rights advocate, uh, was always into free speech as well. And, and like stood up for him. Stood up for him. Like when he was like a young hippie protester and was like, when well, he was we, protesting the war. Yeah. He was protesting the war. And he's like, in this country, uh, everybody has the right to say what they want to say. And you listen to the young bow here. Yeah. You know? Which made me feel better, especially after bowling for Columbine. Yeah. Well, I, th- I really think that Michael Moore took advantage of an old yeah. man there. But I mean, I think he did a lot of harm as the president of the NRA. So yeah. I think he deserves, deserved it. He deserves the shit, but I think he was kind of senile at, at that point. And I think, uh, it was unfair, uh, to air that it, he kind of, um, uh, gorilla'd him <laughs> into, you know, uh, being in that movie and, uh, it was not cool. They just got so many good uh, hot takes on so many different topics in the last three minutes that have nothing to do with <laughs> a touch of evil. See, this is my plan. Distract Craig as much as possible when okay. I don't know what to say about a touch of evil. Tons of hot takes. Can you tell your Bow Bridges story real quick before we move on and you can edit it? <laughs> I, I put in a pause before I said it just in case. Um, well, this this comes from a friend of ours who was a uh, who waited tables at a restaurant in the valley, and Bo Bridges. This is maybe ten years ago. Came into the restaurant, and he had and for breakfast or whatever you know, ordered, by himself by himself ordered an omelet uh, or whatever. And he, he's come in with two things. He's come in with a music stand, which he sets up, takes some time setting up this music stand and a stack of porno magazines. <laughs> and he proceeded to read the porno magazines on the music stand, just one page at a time, like not touching himself or anything gross like that. Uh, I mean, it's gross enough, but he was just reading the magazines on the music stand and then he'd uh, finish it and turn another one and all the while he's eating his breakfast. So, Do you think it was some sort of performance art? Who knows? Maybe he was uh, preparing for a role. Maybe he was <laughs> seeing if he could get a reaction. A bit. You know, it's Hollywood. If a, if a, a well-known <laughs> actor comes in and behaves bizarrely, nobody's going to say anything, I think. That you is know? the craziest story. Yeah, it's though. one of my favorite stories that I, I've, I've heard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so... Uh, our friend who was a waiter witnessed it firsthand. Mike so I, Cohen? Yeah. He's on Trophy Wife? At iOS. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if he wants to be properly credited for this or <laughs> or not, but yeah, it was Mike Cohen. Yeah. All right. Um back to Touch of Evil. <laughs> well, I guess Wells and Heston discussed the character and decided that he was probably educated in America and he went to Harvard and Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know, so they made him really white. That he grew up at, <laughs> he grew up in a wealthy family in Mexico City or what and went went to American schools. So that's how they were able to get around However, even when Heston is speaking Spanish in the movie, it doesn't sound very convincing no, either. No, it's bad. Uh, Don't you star me a sposa. <laughs> Don't you star me a sposa. 
Um, there's a really, really funny scene where Janet Lee is trying to speak Spanish. She's like, KSSO, I don't speak any Spanish. <laughs> uh, well, let's, let's go through the movie a little bit, uh, chronologically with a segment that we like to call Carla's Quotes. She's feeling her oats and Craig's taking notes. Whatever they are, it's Carla's Quotes. The opening titles, by the way, that say uh, this attempts to honor the uh, the Orson Welles memo. So uh, that it kind of announces that to the audience right away. Yeah, the uh, the DVD bonus features. There's a, a nice little thing with Curtis Hansen, uh, the director, who kind of goes around Venice and shows you some of the locations. And you can see those arches and columns that were standing in for the Mexican border town are still there to this day in Venice. And the final shot with the bridge and the canal was shot at one of the Venice canals. Uh, but then it was just, it was much more dead around there. And now there's obviously houses on either side of the canal all the way down, you know, um, we're following the tracking shot and, uh, there's, uh, a fat, bald man who is not Orson Welles crosses the screen at one point and Carla said, Alfred Hitchcock? Alfred Hitchcock? <laughs> um, and then uh, when you see Charlton Heston for the first time, you said, is he supposed to be Mexican? Oh, boy. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> and then when Orson Welles made his first appearance in the movie, you said, yikes, that's Santa Claus. <laughs> And I said, I think he intentionally gained weight for the role. And Carla said, sure. (laughs) (laughs) And I was wrong about that. He is wearing a fat suit, He's wearing a fat suit and he's wearing prosthetics on his face to give him the appearance of being really, uh, (laughs) really fat. Yeah. Um, And uh, I think, I mean, I, I... I love Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's a, he's a great actor and, but he's also, you know, he's, he just kind of goes for it. <laughs> uh, and this character, Hank Quinlan is, is so gross. And, uh, I, I think he just really relishes, uh, this, this performance. He's chewing on cigars. He's, uh, he's supposedly been sober for years when the movie starts and he starts drinking again. Um, he's famous for his intuitions. Uh, so apparently he intuits right away that of like, Oh, it must have been dynamite, you know? <laughs> uh, and, but then apparently he's a crooked cop too because he's been framing suspects for years. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's kind of the, the arc of the movie is Vargas, the good Mexican cop, um, trying to, uh, get the goods on the, the crooked American cop. Um, yeah, I mean, Charlton Heston should not and would not now be cast as a a Mexican person, but, uh, presenting the Mexicans as the, the more virtuous people in, in the movie, you know, Mm -hmm. is, is kind of revolutionary for the time. And there are Latino actors in the movie, uh, as well. Um, so I, I think just a movie at the time that bothers to consider, uh, Mexicans as people. Uh, is somewhat interesting and somewhat different. Okay. <laughs> now, one of the other Mexican characters, though, is uh, uh, Uncle Joe Grandy. 
uh, who is kind of the, he lives on the U.S. side, but he's, uh, part of this Mexican crime family that's wrapped up in the, the story as well. And that actor is Akeem Tamaroff, uh, who is a very convincing Mexican, but that actor was Armenian. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think, uh, he's just a, a really great, uh, Hollywood character actor who turns up in a lot of movies, uh, in this era. And I, I really enjoy his performance in it as well. Uh, he has a toupee that's always falling off. Um, did you like that character? I don't remember him at all. <laughs> uh, I don't know how close attention you were paying to this. If you, if you didn't remember Uncle Joe Grandy. Oh, the main guy? Yeah. He was great. 11 minutes in. This is boring. <laughs> You're talking about the podcast or the movie? No. I'm talking about this is what you said 11 minutes in. Okay. To the movie. Um, I feel like if we were to go back and listen to this one, this would be the one where Carla loses touch with everything that's going on. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> Carla loses touch of evil. <laughs> this is the one where the marriage fell apart. Nope. <laughs> nope. Marlena Dietrich makes a cameo in this movie as she well. She does, yeah. Um, and Wells, I, I, I guess... This movie was based on a book, uh, but Wells rewrote it extensively, uh, bumped up the character of Hank Quinlan, who was more peripheral into kind of the, the more central figure. He wasn't supposed to direct this originally, but Charlton Heston, who was a star at the time, he had already done, uh, 10 commandments, um, had enough power to, uh, make Wells the director. The studio was very reluctant to use him because he had spent a lot of money uh, and not had a hit in a while for mm -hmm. them um, and was just notoriously difficult to work with. Um, but he ended up bringing in a lot of his friends like Marlena Dietrich, who, he, who he'd had an affair with in, in the past and was a friend of his. And she was a character that was not in the script, not in the novel. Hmm. And he didn't even ask the studio's permission to use her. And I think she was no longer under any studio contract at the time. She hadn't worked in a while to the point where, uh, when the executives watched the rushes of the film, they were like, is that Marlena Dietrich? What is she doing? With this? <laughs> and supposedly this cannot be true, but she said that she shot all of her stuff in one day. Wow. But she's in about four or five scenes. I mean, yeah. it's a little more than a cameo role. Like, it's a pretty substantial uh, supporting role. Um, and she's one of my favorite parts of the movie, too. She's great. Yeah. Um, and she plays uh, a madam on the Mexican side. Uh, I can't get a straight answer on what the name of her character is. Hmm. Because all the characters in the film seem to call her Tana or Tana. Hmm. But frequently when you see her character listed i believe it's listed in imdb as tanya hmm. with a y um now of course because the character is not in the script you can't consult the script to see what the how the character's name was spelled uh and at the end credits it doesn't list the character names just the actors so uh there's a dispute over whether the character's name is tana or tanya i bet it's tanya uh, that's a real name. <laughs> I'm going to go with Tana because I think that that's what Orson Welles says in mm. the, uh, in the movie. Anyway, when they first, uh, showed a close up of her, you said Allison Janney. <laughs> and you said, yep. 
Uh, and we had just seen I, Tanya. That's right. I, <laughs> I, Tana. I'm sorry. It's I, Tana. Um, with Alice and Janney. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we'll probably get to that when we do our best of, uh, 2017, yep. uh, list, but that will be up there for both of us. Mm-hmm. I think we like that movie a lot. Uh, but she's got a lot of the best lines in the movie. Mm-hmm. With, and the weird thing is, like, supposedly they had had an affair. Uh, I'm not only Wells and Dietrich, but, uh, Hank Quinlan and Tana. Uh, he is the cop on the other side of the border. But there's the implication like that they haven't seen each other in years when they live just, I don't know, a few hundred yards from each other yeah. or whatever. And she doesn't recognize him. And he's like, I'm Hank Quinlan. And she's like, you're a mess, honey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he's like, oh, I'd like to try some of your chili. And she's like, it might be a little too spicy for you. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty great. Um, but she says, I didn't recognize you. And Carla said, he's fat. <laughs> This is Carla and Charlton Heston again. Man, that makeup is really offensive. <laughs> <laughs> so Janet Lee plays Vargas's wife. And uh, first of all, one of the main re-edits that they did was um, intercutting between her story and his story to create kind of a, a feeling of simultaneity and parallel stories. And in the original edit, they did all the Vargas stuff and then all the Mrs. Vargas stuff. Oh, wow. Uh, which uh, apparently the studio thought would make more sense, but it's just such an uncinematic choice. So mm-hmm. you build a lot more tension and suspense by cutting back and forth uh, between the stories. Um, but while he's investigating this case, they're newlyweds and uh, she's kind of left to her own devices and he ends up checking her into this, motel which he thinks will be safer that's more on the outskirts of town but it's run by the the grandies and she's the only guest at the motel and then she's kind of menaced by a series of uh, of people there uh and then the first person she encounters is the night clerk at the motel who's played by dennis weaver um who uh was in uh, Spielberg's Duel, the movie where he's hmm. uh, a driver being chased by a truck for the mm-hmm. entire movie. But he was famous for playing a detective on TV in the 70s called McLeod. Hmm. Uh, and then he was also on Gunsmoke at the time. So he was known as a supporting character on Gunsmoke. Uh, but I guess Wells really gave Dennis Weaver permission to like just play this crazy-ass character and uh it's really broad and really weird it's really bad <laughs> <laughs> well you said um you said oh no who's this creeper jesus <laughs> <laughs> and then after his first interaction with janet lee you said that was the worst weirdest scene yeah uh i mean it's one of the elements and then you watch the behind the scenes and charlton heston's like dennis weaver was amazing in this movie and janet lee's <laughs> saying the same thing and you're like what are you talking about I don't know if he's amazing, but it's really weird. And I just like that, that there's a performance like this in, in that movie. And okay. <laughs> but think about this. I mean, this guy is a creepy, uh, night clerk at a, at a, at a scary motel, um, with sexual hangups. This is two years before Psycho, though. So. Whoa. I mean, uh, it had to be influential in Anthony Perkins' performance in, mm. in some way, you know. Maybe, if he saw it. <laughs> then I think we, we finished like the first hour of the movie on one day and then we went back the next day to watch it. 
And uh, Carla said, let's get this over with as soon as possible. <laughs> uh, which, uh, in other words, is like, we're, we're going to watch the rest of the movie. It's going to take as long as the movie <laughs> takes. But <laughs> um, there's a scene where uh, Quinlan is interrogating a Mexican suspect. He's the boyfriend of the daughter of the man who was murdered. Mm-hmm. So Rudy Lineker, who is like some local politician, is the guy who was murdered, and her daughter is dating this uh, Mexican shoe clerk. So they go to interrogate him, um, and uh, they're they're not following any modern uh, police procedure <laughs> codes uh, because Charlton Heston is like touching stuff, uh, and then he goes in the bathroom, he washes his hands, and Carla said, "Was he just washing his hands at a suspect's house?" <laughs> um, and then. There's, uh, Quinlan has a great relationship with his, uh, deputies, this guy, Menzies, uh, who's this older character actor, Joseph Kalea. And I really like that character of Menzies. And he has some nice comic moments and then some very moving moments, uh, toward the end as he betrays his friend, uh, Quinlan. Um, but there's, there's a scene where he's like, well, you didn't ask me to get any donuts, Captain. And I'm kind of laughing. And Carla said, did I miss a joke? <laughs> I feel like I was laughing at a lot of this movie and you had no idea yeah. why. I think it's just kind of darkly comic. Um, there's this other like very Lynchian scene where Charlton Heston is making a phone call uh, and it's at a shop run by a blind woman and she's kind of in the foreground at, at the shot and she's kind of making a grotesque face and she has a sign, if you're mean enough to steal from the blind, help yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just love it. I just love all the little details in this movie. Um, I think that's Carla's nightmare, by the way, is when Janet Lee is at the motel, she's just trying to sleep and they're intentionally trying to drive her insane. So they're playing loud music and that there's a party going on in the next room. And I think that's Carla's nightmare is music and loud neighbors at a hotel. Yes, for sure. A hundred percent. We've run into that in the past where we've had to switch rooms. Many times. Do you remember our room in Cardiff? Uh, Cardiff. Oh, God. It was the worst. It was... And that was an expensive hotel, too. It was really expensive. It was, like, right downtown, and it was right across the street from a nightclub. Yeah. And so it was just, like, blaring music until 3 in the morning. Yeah. It was horrible. We didn't like Cardiff that much. We like going to the Doctor Who Museum. That was the best part. Yes. Um, and then more and more members of this uh, street gang are coming in. Uh, there's like a lesbian biker gang that comes in. And mm-hmm. Carla said, these Mexican accents are really all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Men- I guess it'd be. No, they'd be accents, right? Not dialects. Yep. Yeah. Um, Arlo's barking. That's a new dog on the podcast. That's a new dog. That's my roommate's dog. Yes. Arlo. He's a beagle. <laughs> um, another thing that like kind of makes this movie uh, strange for the time is like uh, how overt they are in talking about drugs. Like there's a whole thing of like, you know what a Mary Jane is? Yeah. You know, there's references to heroin. There's references to marijuana. Uh, and it's not like coded at all. Like this was meant to be a B picture, you know, mm-hmm. like a movie that, you know, uh, just shown in the, uh, the, you know, the second run houses a little bit matched up with another like quickie exploitation picture or whatever. And because it 
was Orson Welles that attracted like bigger stars or whatever. But I think the intent by the studio was always to kind of like dump it as a B picture and forget about it. Not as many quotes for the second half of the movie. <laughs> None. Well, though there are a few, there are a few quotes. Um, oh, this was uh, this was when Charlton Heston is looking for his wife now, and then she's been abducted from the motel. Um, and then the night clerk, played by Dennis Weaver, is kind of there, and they have a really weird interaction. And Carla said, "Why is he being weird?" That's a really cool shot. <laughs> I think I said that's a really cool shot a few times. You did. You liked you liked the cinematography. Yeah. You did. Uh and then he's going through his effects and he's like, Where's my gun? I had a gun in here. Uh and Carla said, Okay, let's get more concerned about where your wife is, Charlton Heston, Mr. NRA. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because he's at the hotel looking for his wife and she's missing. Yeah. And he's concerned about his gun. <laughs> And then she gets framed for the murder of uh, of Uncle Joe Grandy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a great scene where Orson Welles comes in and uh, and chokes the guy to death. There's a whole thing of like where Quinlan's like the best way to murder someone is to choke them. You know how my wife died? She was choked to death. <laughs> but I'm like, well, that's a little that's a little suspicious, Hank. Uh, and then so like they've drugged Janet Lee. Uh, made it look like she's hopped up on heroin. They gave her sodium pentothal instead. Um, there's a scene at the hotel which suggests like that she's going to be gang raped. Apparently, if I understand the dialogue correct, she is not because they're like, we're going to make her think that something really happened to her, but she's waking up in a strange motel room with like a needle in her arm. And then uh, Uncle Joe's corpse is like Ugh. hanging uh, above her. It's, it's creepy. It's a really creepy, scary scene. Um, but Carla said, like, she could murder that guy. <laughs> uh, so then they, then they frame her for the murder and throw her in jail. And it's all trying to just kind of uh, discredit Vargas and put a stain on his credibility. I don't know who you're talking about here, but you said she's like, man, these bitches be crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think you're talking about Marlene and Dietrich. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, great final sequence of the movie is uh, uh, Menzies, who is uh, Quinlan's second in command, has volunteered to help Vargas out by recording Quinlan and trying to get him to confess to – to planting evidence in, in cases. So Charlton Hessen is holding this uh, transmitter the whole time. Uh, Menzies is wired. And so he's kind of following uh, Quinlan and Menzies around uh, down by this canal and under this bridge and everything. Uh, and for some reason, he's not turned on the volume on it. I'm like, mm-hmm. it's uh, it, it makes no sense as far as good cop work does, but it makes for like an exciting um, thriller ending. Um and, uh, and Carla said, you need to do better at hiding. Uh, cause Charlton has is always just like a few feet away from con- carrying this gigantic radio. Yeah. Um, it's funny to watch him walk through the water with that radio though. Yeah. Uh, and then so, uh, Quinlan shoots his buddy, uh, and then he's about to frame Heston for the murder. And then Menzies, uh, who is dying of the gunshot, uh, shoots Quinlan from the top of the bridge 
and then huge fat Orson Welles just kind of slides down this muddy <laughs> bank into the river. Uh, it, it, it's a great just desserts for a great, uh, villainous character, I think. And then there's a, uh, I just love the epilogue, which is, uh, Schwartz, who's one of the lawyers from the DA's office, uh, has this conversation with Tana or Tanya. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and she just has so many great lines in that last scene because she's, uh, she, he's like, you loved him, right? And she's like, the cop did, the one who shot him. He loved him. <laughs> Uh, and then, uh, she says he was some kind of man. What does it matter what you say about people? <laughs> and, uh, and then the last exchange is, uh, he says, goodbye, Tana. And she says, adios. <laughs> so it's like she's heading back to the Mexican side. So, uh, yeah. goodbye, adios is a nice little yeah, I liked button, that moment. button to the movie. Walter Murch, the, uh, editor and sound, uh, guy who we talked about uh, on the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got that whole book, which I recommended before, uh, but he's on the DVD extras talking a little bit about some of the changes that they made because he was brought in to edit uh, the remastered version in 98. And there's, uh, he took out a close up per Wells's memo of Menzies when he has that uh, scene with, uh, with Vargas earlier in the movie, uh, a close up that, Wells didn't like it. He was like, why am I taking out this close up? That's strange. And then he realized that once he took out that close up, that, uh, Menzies whole character changed for the entire movie that he wasn't, uh, he wasn't doing it. He wasn't helping out Vargas just because Vargas gave him an order. He was helping out Vargas because he realized it was the right thing to do. Mm. Um, because he'd been involved with this crooked cop for years and he finally has to stand up to him. And there was something about the close up where he had kind of like wilted, uh, that made him look like a weaker character. And then after they re-edited the movie, he started to get so many compliments from people like, I really like that character Menzies of like, what a great arc for that character. And it really came down to taking out one close up of the actor that Wells realized should not have been in there. Wow, that's really cool. Uh, you want to give this a letter grade? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good movie. It's not my kind of movie. I'm not, I don't have the, it's not for me to give this a letter grade. Okay. So, uh, you did this with one other thing, right? Was that, uh, it was Paths of Glory. Was I it? I believe was the other one, uh, that you just took a pass on. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, it's a it's a really well made film. Okay, so opt out. Yeah, I'm opt not, out. I didn't opt out. I watched it. <laughs> you watched the entire movie. I did. Okay, so no letter grade. It, my letter okay. grade is well made movie, Mister or- Orson Welles. <laughs> well made Wells. Okay, <laughs> that's my letter grade. A WMW. <laughs> okay, uh, you want to do a scene? Sure. Okay, so uh, this is. Whatever exchange that Janet Lee and Charlton Heston have after the end of the movie, then she's, uh, she's in jail mm-hmm. for, uh, for, for drugs and murder. Uh, I guess they've cleared her name and he's, uh, freeing her, uh, from jail, but it's going to be an awkward conversation. What's his name again? Um, Mike. Mike. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Mike, I didn't do it. I didn't do anything wrong. I was just being a lady in a hotel room all on her own. I know, Susie. You would never do anything like that. I promise. I I know that you're saying that you believe me, but I don't believe that you believe me. Because why would you believe me? I can't believe that you lost my gun, though. 
well, I, I had it. You had it and waited. And then it was gone. Well, you know, that's gun safety 101 is know where your weapons are at all times. Uh, I'm you know, so we, sorry. We have a right. You know, the government gave us a right to own these devices. Oh, my dog is barking like you wouldn't believe right now. What, your feet hurt? My feet are hurting like you wouldn't <laughs> believe right now. Now tell me, Susie, you weren't really hopped up on that Mary Jane in that age, no, were you? No, I was... No, I was high, but not on Mary Jane. What were you high on, Susie? Life. I was high on life. Well, <laughs> that's, that I, 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 I can't fault you for that. Mike, will you marry me one day? Well, we already got married. That's Mary's. what I meant. You don't, you don't remember that? We're on our honeymoon. It's a crucial plot point right, in this movie. Right, right, that right. We're I'm sorry. I've just right been now. so hopped up on Mary Jane that I forgot so what was going on. So you were hopped up on Mary Jane. Oh, you got me. <laughs> All right, see. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. The dog is barking like crazy. I hope they can't hear it. Uh, there's no way. There's no way that's audible on this. Yeah, it's <laughs> fine. Um. Makes you miss uh, Benny and Frankie, doesn't it? Yep. Okay. Well, Carla, we're going to continue our run through the greatest film noirs of all time as we move on to number 41 on Craig's list. Uh, this is a 1944 film directed and co-written by Mr. Billy Wilder. What? And it stars Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson, and it's called... Double Indemnity. Double Indemnity. Have you seen this? Yes. You think you've seen it? No, I've never seen it. Okay. Uh, cool. Well, it's a great old, uh, classic film noir from the forties and, uh, it involves insurance. Uh, exciting. Okay. We'll see you then, Craig's listeners. The list is an absolute good. The list is life. <laughs> 